Low Light. Written, performed and produced by Melanie Crawley. Episode 5. The streets around Lightwood House and Rowan Drive and Hawthorne Road are softened with a duvet of snow. The timing of it last night, the speed with which it fell, those big fat flakes when roads and paths were quiet, except for the fox, means Lower Lee is surprised this morning. People wrap a woolly round themselves, find their wellies and venture into the streets, creeping down to the faster road at the bottom of the hill, looking with a smile along the undulating tree-lined street where not one vehicle has made tracks. Some folk are walking in the road to their work, framed by the stark black trunks and branches. The snow begins to fall again, and the grey of the sky descends. The crowlet seems drawn toward that grey light, as the snow comes down, she arrows up, cawing. Let's follow. Come on. I know, I can't see either. Just a minute. We're losing height. I can smell the city centre. Yes, here we are. Ah, oh, there's the police station blue sign. We're at the back in the car park. There's a tiny light on inside a small car. Someone's fertling about in the glove compartment. It's Ruby Hussein. There she is, little bird. She writes herself, clutching a Kit Kat. She sees the crowlet, draws her brows together. She knows what that corvid's up to. I wish we did. Crowlet wanders off nonchalantly, pretending to peck at crumbs. Ruby shuts the car door with a flourish and skips back up the steps into the building, not without checking the location of said crow before disappearing inside. Inside, Ruby should be on her break, but the detective inspector is on to her. Get Ms Lawton Jones a cup of tea, ma 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 ma. Tanya, at the police station, bright and early, despite the snow. Actually, Tanya has to go. She smiles her smile at Ruby, and then looks at the detective with something smouldering in her languid eyes. Thank you again for coming in so early, Miss Lawton-Jones. You've been very helpful. Sergeant Hussein will show you out. When you've done that, Sergeant, start on that list. Boss. And out they go. Out they go as Lewis enters the building. And that look he gives Tanya could render fat. Ruby notices the burning gaze and watches Tanya for her response, which is to give a suggestive little uptick of her beautifully coloured lips. Yves Saint Laurent, rouge per couture in number one, Le Rouge. Louis is stony silent. But then... Are you here because of Padma? Did you see something? Is the... Hello, Louis. I came to speak to the detective inspector. No, I'm not here because of Padma. Ruby gives a slight flinch at that, because she bloody well is. Well, I have given my brief statement, of course, although nothing I have to say will matter, I shouldn't think. But I actually have some lovely news. I'll have to pop round and see Sarah. We've arranged to use the church as a collection and distribution centre for the refugee campaign. The detective was helping me with some contacts and advice. 
Such good news, isn't it? Hmm. Ruby pipes up. Hi there, are you here about Miss Vishwakarma? Yes, Luis Rodriguez. Yep. Okay, well, thanks, Tanya. He digs deep for grace and charm. Yes, it is good news. Well done. Sarah and I will help spread the word or whatever you need, of course. He turns to Ruby as Tanya pulls her large, beautiful coat, cape, it's a kind of a coaty, capey thing, around her and steps out into the snow. Oh, it's not snowing anymore. The sun's come out. Crowlet looks disappointed. Tanya breathes in, face to the golden haze in the sky. She steps on, looking forward to her day. She checks her phone for the time. Three hours to charity. Lewis and Ruby can't help watching as she disappears from view. I want to get some information about what happens now, continues Lewis to Ruby. The, um, the autopsy, you know, that kind of thing. I don't think Padma had any living relatives, so, well, I want to see what we can do. Her friends. About her funeral, you know, and... His once fiery eye glistens. Snow melts from his coat and drips onto the plastic floor covering. I can help with that. Come this way. They pass the D.I. who has a small plastic bag in his hand with what looks like a mobile phone inside. Sean? It's Luis Rodriguez. I was there last night at the scene of Padma Vishwakarma's death. I was upset. Sorry, I should have said hello. Do you remember me? I think we were in the same class at school. The detective inspector flusters a little. Of course. Lewis, how are you? So sorry about your friend. We're doing everything we can to find the person responsible, of course. I know. Thanks, Sean. All Padma's friends will be happy to help in any way they can. She was a valued member of our community. His voice breaks, and he writes himself. Of course, of course, soothes Sean. Lewis allows his eyebrows to draw together. I just saw Tanya Lawton-Jones. She told me about the church. I take it you're providing some help with that. Yes, yes, it's a great initiative. Yes, it is. Good to see the church building put to good use. It's worrying having such a significant building sitting empty. The detective nods. Does he look a tad perturbed? Lewis watches him, glances to the bag in his hand. It's an evidence bag. Well, I mustn't keep you from your work. Uh, please let us know if we can help with your investigation, Detective Inspector. We want to know what happened to Padma. The DI nods seriously and continues along the corridor. Ruby Hussein. She's a watcher. She absorbs information. Lewis does too. There's a similarity between them in this respect. Despite the stark contrast in their physical appearance, Ruby, small, delicate, dark, her glittery eyes gentle. Lewis, strapping, tall, large-featured, and with a brightness of movement, a beat, and they acknowledge the task at hand wordlessly, 
before disappearing into the bowels of the station building. Outside, the silent city begins to tinkle and splash as frozen twigs give up their snowy covers under the slight warmth of the sun. Little streams and rivers wander like drunks home from a party, curling their way through the byways of the town, brownish and glinting. Crowlet's calling, throwing out her cry, which is caught and thrown onwards in the tops of the lime trees, and then out of the city towards Lower Lee, where things are colder, less inclined to thaw, and the streets are more possessive of their snow. In her sunlit flat, Charity hears the crows. She's up and dressed, sat, well, perched, watches one of the doom birds scuttle on the balustrade of her balcony, physically recoils at the sound of her door buzzer, stays quiet, looks at the floor, at the bag of blood-stained clothing, picks dried blood from her nails. The buzzer shouts again. She stares at the entry phone. Her mobile begins to ring. She silences it, gets up, washes her face and scrubs her nails, pulls on a jumper and puts on shoes as the buzzer screams and then changes pitch. She jerks her head up and her eyes widen as she hears the sound of the front door being buzzed open. Her breathing stops as she gulps down an amendment to her plan, lunges for her phone, presses call. The noisy ascent of her visitor stops one flight down from her apartment door. She tiptoes into the cupboard, paints a bright face onto herself and... Hi, Dad. Sorry, I just wanted to get out of the snow. I'm at the theatre. What do you want? What? Why? No, I've got stuff to do and... No, you can't. There's a rehearsal and a meeting, all sorts. Yeah, why not at this hour? It's a busy venue, Dad. Told you. Heart of the community. Hmm. I went to bed early, switched my phone off. Yeah. What? Why? I don't understand. Why do I... No, there's no problem. What money? We don't stash cash there. Don't be daft. Er, uh, because we don't keep the product and the proceeds in the same place. You know that. What are you on about? Why do I? Well, that's as maybe. But I don't want to reassure her. You reassure her. Dad, you know I can't stand her. Then why are you even still in business with her after what Tony did? Why do you defend her? No. What? Really? Seriously? Yeah, of course I've heard. No. Yeah, it's really sad. I am sad. Sorry if I don't sound sad. But I'm just on the phone to my own father, who's demanded I go and appease the wife of that creep, that pedo because he's too spineless to do it himself. Why won't you believe me? Yeah, we probably will go over and over it, Lance, because it's never been resolved, and you've never even tried to understand from my point of view. You're supposed to be my father. Oh, for God's sake. All right, all right. 
Jesus. Okay, Lance, I'll go round. Midday. Really? High noon. Okay, I'll get my chaps out. Chaps? Ugh, never mind. Okay, okay, I'm going. God. Charity listens as Lance's footsteps recede down the stairs. She peers out of the window and watches him wander off towards the church, pulling his woolly scarf around his neck. She sees the cloud of e-cigarette vapour try and keep up with him as he walks, slipping occasionally as he goes. He slows as he passes the theatre. Charity's jaw tenses. There'll be no lights on in there yet. There's a foot of snow. At least the lie worked well enough for now. She looks at the bag again, then at her fingers. When she looks back at Lance, he's gone. A crow is in his place, hopping and flapping. If only men could be turned into birds with a thought, she thinks. <coughs> the crow, actually the crowlet herself, lifts up. She's busy today, bringing disquiet to the human population. She clatters onto the roof of the theatre and can spy Shirley with Reg in tow, hurrying along to Rowan Drive. Where's she off to? Back to the long-lashed lover in the attic. The romance. Remember? Pay attention. Episode one. Well, after finding the cache where Cat said it would be, but not finding the phone with it, she was about to launch the I told you so speech, when Ruby Hussein called. Shirley is summoned to the police station, so has left Cat to think about the implications of her blackmail phone being at large, while she hurries into town to make sure she's back in time for lunch at Eric's. They pass Sally clearing her path with effort. Reg looks up at Shirley questioningly. Hi, Sally, Shirley says as they wander past. Oh, Hi, Shirley. Have you been to see Eric? Is he okay? Is that girl still there? I think the police were going round. They did go round, and no, she's not there. I think she's moved on. Eric's fine. I'll tell him you're asking after him. Has she? Think so, yes, Sally. Anyway, I've got to, um... Are you okay? Must have been a shock for you, too. Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm made of tough stuff. Just want to know what happened. Have you heard about the church? Sally goes on. No. What? Tanya's opening it as a centre for getting stuff to the refugees. You know, distributing clothes and things. Is she? Really? Since when? Oh, I don't know when she sorted it out. Got the go-ahead from the council this morning, I think. I still do part-time for the trust, so I get the communications, you see. No stopping that woman. She's a force of nature. Is she? Hmm. Is, um, Lance involved in the, uh, trust? Lance? Yeah. Oh, well, I think he does do a few odds and ends, you know, as and when, now and again. Why? Odds and ends. Right. Uh, no, nothing. I, it's just I've seen him at the church recently, so that must have been why. OK, well, hope it does some good. See you later, Sal. Reg is off. 
He knows a cue when he hears one. Yes, I'm sure it will. Oh, Shirley, do you know who'll be arranging things for Padma? The funeral and that. Will it be Lewis? Or Eric? I expect it would be too much for Eric, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm busy, but I can help if help is needed, of course. Sally offers weakly. I expect there'll be a few of us wanting to help, Sally. Don't worry if you're busy. Reg, slow down. Yes. OK, thanks. OK. Sally calls back with something of a distracted voice. Shirley wanders round the corner, readying her keys, watching her step. Her shoes are sodden. Sally looked pale, bitten lips, hair unbrushed. Odds and ends, eh? Odds and sods, bits and bats. Zebras? Could be zebras. <coughs> Lower Lee is all about its Monday morning. The sun's given up and the grey light has reclaimed the neighbourhood. The brief thaw was short-lived. The temperature is dropping. Time ticks. The moist ground freezes again. Smooth ice forms. Trees creak, blackening in the relentlessly grey light. Crows grip branches in the horse chestnut tree at the edge of the theatre car park, waiting for the show. They wait. We wait. Look up Alder, right to the top of the road, past Eric's house, past the flats. A colourful figure rounds the corner. Here bumbles Brandon Moll. He doesn't seem to notice the treacherous walking conditions. Maybe it's his low centre of gravity. He defies the stark weather and staring daytime, wrapped as he is, head to toe, in moss green, butter yellow and violent pink. He emits vast clouds of breath as he puffs along, making a beeline for the theatre, we assume, which is his to unlock and light up as he wishes, him being the current chair of the board of trustees. But no, he turns into the gate of Lightwood House. There's a slight trepidation on his shiny face, but he's obviously had a stern word with himself earlier because he looks fairly single-minded. Yes, he makes his attack on the flimsy front door. Hang on, here in his wake comes Charity, head down, discreetly holding the bag with the blood-stained clothing under her jacket, against her belly. She slows outside Eric's, watching as Brandon is presenting what is obviously an exciting idea to Cat, and now Eric in the hall, with the door wide open. Deirdre doesn't look happy about the draft. Charity is spotted by Eric. Brandon turns, calls. Oh, won't be a minute, Charity. As Charity bundles the bag up more securely under her coat and waits awkwardly, half in and half out of Eric's front garden. Then it's Gavin coming from the other direction, up Alder, having visited Oh My Cod, down at the crossroads for the lunch order. Lewis strides up behind him, almost taking them both down as he slips on an unseen frozen gutter stream, hidden by the snow, whilst clasping Gavin's arm. Luckily, 
Gavin's innate clownishness saves them both, after a brief moment of slapstick. A little crowd, then, bobbling along to gather together on a freezing cold Monday morning. The promenade has a feeling of the tribal about it, a precursor to ritual, what with the tramp and crunch of progress as the neighbours converge at the front door of the old Victorian theatre, waiting for Brandon to fumble his keys into action, get the kettle on and fire up the fan heaters. Lewis is closing the big church-like door when Reg streams through and launches himself at Brandon. Brandon is one of Reg's favourite people. Shirley completes the gathering. The kettle ceases its noisy boil, and there's a moment then while everyone acknowledges each other. Each person's presence seems to add a colour to the picture. They fill up the scene as if it's a paint-by-numbers, the beginning of a beautiful image. The only activity is Reg, seemingly trying to eat Brandon's fat cheeks. Shirley picks him off bodily and holds him like a straitjacket. She stares meaningfully at Cat, who gives a negative headshake and a grimace. The fish and chips smell lovely, though, and Gavin feels guilty for not getting more. Charity's stomach rumbles. So, uh, right, okay, begins Brandon. This is helpful having so many of you here. Lewis, I expect you have news, and I've had an idea that I've run very briefly past Eric. Something that might be a starting point for a celebration for Padma. For, of... I mean, of her life. Anyway, let's get a tea and go through to the auditorium, shall we? Charity, will you put the workers on and get the heating fired up? Back we go then, into the low light. Red velvet, tip-up seats, and a hush that only comes with acoustics that have been wrestled into submission. The whisper-waiting of well-meaning members of a community. Friends. Strangers, holders of secrets, guarding their own guilt carefully, lest anyone else sense their weakness. Putting forward their good intentions and their smiles. Pulling on their memories of Padma Vishwakarma, who started all this on the 5th of May 1979. Brandon takes a breath and wants to organise the bejesus out of this, but he can't bring himself to speak. A calm has descended. The brass fixtures give off such warm little reflections of the lamplight from the walls. They gleam. Gavin feels himself retreat into the idea of that green bottle and its glimmering liquid. It coats his imagination, and he pipes up. Tell us a story. Eric. Reg escapes from Shirley and leaps onto Gavin's lap. Shirley is ready with a reprimand and a sharp-pointed barb, but falters and smiles. Eric, who has been standing mid-aisle, looking straight ahead at the plush red curtain, moves his head round so his ear is better placed to take in the plea. His eyebrows twitch and he blinks. What did they say, Lewis? he asks tentatively. Lewis, who has been staring after Eric with something approaching disapproval, raises his chin. 
Ten days, they think, or thereabouts, before she's released. Eric's gaze rests on him, although there is a lot of paperwork and just, just ridiculous administration that has to happen. I think I will be able to make sure she is released to us, her friends. Apparently they don't know of any will in existence, so there is no official executor. It's a bit awkward, a bit sticky, but I'll make sure we can get her back, he says determinedly. Eric says, there is a will. Silence. The neighbor's eyes widen. It's like a scene from a silent film. Gavin supplies the dialogue. Where is it, Eric? Who has it? Eric frowns at him and waves his hand as if to say, not now, lad. He glances back at Lewis, who is not impressed, but is keeping his powder dry. Then the stage curtains open and the bright white strip lights flicker on, illuminating the scratched, dusty stage, a murmur of disapproval in the auditorium. Eric turns his head back and looks at the stage. Charity brings a chair forward, not a hard one they use for rehearsals, but the soft old wing-backed thing with gold leaf-covered carvings about its edges. Eric crooks his neck round again, towards Gavin. Gavin takes on a slightly confused but ultimately smug look, flashing his eyes to Shirley, who shakes her head with distaste. He gives Eric an encouraging smile. Eric hesitates, seems to silently seek confirmation from Gavin. Is Gavin seriously suggesting that Eric starts telling stories, knowing the problems they've got to deal with already? Tell everyone the story you told us last night, Eric. Not, not exactly that one, of course. I mean, not the, uh, not the bit about the flowers. Eric's eyes shoot to heaven, and he gives his most meaningful stare to Gavin. Shirley and Kat give each other the side-eye in disbelief. Flowers? asks Brandon innocently. Oh, no, just, um... It was just Eric got a bit carried away about, you know, yeah, he was tired. We don't really need that bit. Gavin, says Shirley. He shuts up. He glances at Lewis, who has his arms folded, watching. His eyes switch from him to Eric and back again. Sorry, says Gavin. Go on, Eric. Go on. Eric nods once and sets his foot on the stage steps. Brandon lunges forward to help him up. Charity, who has been quietly taking in the conversation from her place in the wings, steps forward and offers her hand from centre stage. Together, they herd Eric towards his place. He shuffles over, leans on the arm of the chair, and twists himself round to sit down heavily. He looks up, the strip lights cower and retreat, bringing forward the low, dreaming light that has been hiding in the audience's memory. Every one of them has listened to Eric tell a story at some point in their lives. Stories that glitter with such actuality that they can't properly be distinguished from real life. Eric pauses. 
his eyes sparkle. Reg wags and waits. I was born in the house next door. I shared my early childhood with three brothers. My mother died when I was four, in 1957, and my father took my siblings with him into his dark depression then. The house we were so privileged to inhabit, built by my great-great-grandfather in the 1830s, began to be reclaimed by the green surrounding it, and I kept myself busy terrorising the beasts that lived in that garden and generally running amok, so I managed to avoid being drawn into that darkness. Fifteen years later, and I was the only one left. For another eight years, I wrestled with my memories and with that house. I tried to keep its place in the community, but I was young. Oh, I was daft too. Got up to all sorts. All sorts. His head twists to find charity, and she blushes and looks away. But... Well, I was young and it wasn't all bad. I had lots of sparkle and I loved to dance. Oh, I, I did. And I emptied my father's cellars and discovered other substances. <laughs> I found music and art and had friends too. Yeah. But there was no direction or meaning to my life and I felt myself begin to sink as my brothers had. I was rotting, mouldering into the green, along with the building. In 1979, when the house began to crumble in earnest, and, well, the dark began to tighten its grip on our world, Padma Vishwakarma knocked on my front door and told me she needed me. She said, if I let her walk in my garden, she'd tell me the story of her life and she'd show me the way to live with the green. She was mesmerising. She glimmered on my doorstep that early summer evening. The insects floated in the low golden light beyond her, a chorus to her leading lady. As she stood there, framed by the grand old gas lamps on either side, like two chaperones. Everyone in the theatre has their eyes on Eric until he mentions Padma. Then their eyes slide away from the old man and find the middle distance. There, Padma's bangles clink, her laughter echoes, her eyes flash, her warm touch brushes Lewis's face and ruffles Reggie's fur. She unfurls in Eric's story and the evening light fills the auditorium. The warmth of the summer air drifts among the neighbours. The scent of the trees and the flowers fill the stage and creep out among the assembly. I couldn't say no. Hmm. <laughs> We kept each other company that evening until it was dark, when we slept a dreamless sleep. 
Padma woke me just before dawn, and then we walked out, away from my family's house, out of the city, as the rising sun called us on. We walked and smiled at each other, and I could see the pleasure in her eyes in the morning light. She said she'd been looking for me. For me? Why? I asked. And she said that she couldn't say exactly, but that a wrong turn had been taken, and she knew if we became friends that we could find the right path together. That morning, we came upon a theatre troupe in amongst the woods. They were camped, and they welcomed us to sit with them, and we helped them to set up their show. People came to watch, and we saw their story unfold among the hills, with the birds singing and the bats starting to dive about. There was music, and we began to dance all through the valley and on the hillsides and across the stream all night. We sat down to rest under the stars and the thin curve of a fingernail moon that night, and when the dawn light called us forward again, we walked to the high moor and listened to the delighted voices of the birds and waited there, looking down into the green valley and breathing in the scented wildflowers. I thought to myself, as I sat there with Padma, that at the age of 27, I was still waiting to begin my own life. Vishwa said to me, Eric pulls his big greyish handkerchief from his trouser pocket and wipes his eyes. There'll always be a connection between you and me. Always. Wherever you are, I'll know how to find you. All I need to do is set foot on the ground and the earth will show me. I'll walk and there'll be a track made that links us. The earth will darken where I walk and when you walk on it too, when you want to find me, it will become darker still. And as we travel to and from each other, we'll lay ourselves into the green. I looked at her and I thought I was in love. And then she said, That is how we fight, Eric. Together, that's all. We work out what's right because we'll always have to face each other every day and be able to smile and say we did our best. And we tell each other every new thing and we build up a web of ideas and kind thoughts and glorious life. And we fight, Eric. We have to always fight because we'll never win, you see. The winning is in the carrying on. The winning is in the never giving up. If you can do that, then you can walk the track with me and we'll dance tonight until our future is revealed. By this time, the chips have gone cold, and no one cares about their once steaming mugs of tea. Every last person present wants to fight alongside Eric, and everyone wants to know how they'll begin to do that 
without Padma there to help them. No one in the auditorium has an answer. A muffled, Ah! infiltrates the performance. Reg cuddles into Gavin, hoping for better news. Gavin glances at Shirley. He leans over and hands the bracelet he found on the terrace to her. She looks at him, stunned. He says, Do you know where Elle went? I think we might need her. I don't know where she went, but I've got a phone number. The crowlet calls again. Excellent timing. Gavin looks up at the sound and spies Charity, concealed in the shadows at the back of the stage, as she looks up, expectant. Then comes a lonely creak from the front of the building, as the great front door is hauled open, and everyone looks round as Tanya walks forward, coat cape draped just so, and backlit dramatically by the harsh, snowy light. High noon has arrived in Lower Lee then. The sniggering wind gathers force and slams the theatre door back in its frame, and the neighbours hold their collective breath in anticipation of the next part of their story. You have been listening to Low Light, written, performed and produced by Melanie Crawley for Crawley Voice Studio. Find out more at crawleyvoicestudio.com Thank you.